Welcome to the Suffering Podcast. Each week, we walk you through how suffering is the way to sustainable success and the path to greatness. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many more. Visit thesufferingpodcast.com for complete details. Please subscribe and like to get our latest episodes as soon as they drop. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn for exclusive content. Please comment. We may read your comments on future shows or even reach out to you for a future guest appearance. Let's embrace how suffering forges bonds that last forever, showing we are never alone. So get so ready, get ready, sit down, sit down, and strap it, strap it. Sit your ass down, down. Sit your ass down, down. Let's talk about the suffering. It's time to start the pain. Sit your ass down, down. Sit your ass down, down. Strap it, strap it. This is gonna hurt, gonna hurt. This is gonna hurt, gonna hurt. Let's talk about the suffering. It's time to start the pain. This is gonna hurt. It's time for the Suffering Podcast. Dented Development Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a mission to assist first responders and their families repair dents caused by suffering. Help us support the ones who take care of us selflessly. Dented things can still operate, but may not be as pretty as they once were. Make a difference and go to DentedDevelopmentProject.com to get involved today. Our heroes need our help. All new Suffering Podcast gear is here. The show depends heavily on our supporters to get the word out. Let people know that suffering is a team sport and no one is alone in their struggles. Wearing the Suffering Podcast merchandise accomplishes that goal. Check out our store at thesufferingpodcast.com or check our show notes for the link. Your support and love means everything to us. Two buildings are constructed side by side. The building on the right was well-financed by an ultra-successful business conglomerate driven by stockholder dividends and earning reports, but not on the stability of the structure. The building was beautiful in every detail and looked like a palace built for a king. The building on the left was self-financed by a local businessman who risked his family fortune. Rather than commit his stretch finances on the glossy veneer like his neighbor, the local businessman chose to dig down to the bedrock and set a solid foundation. His hotel was not as pretty as his neighbor's, but stood sturdy and strong. Upon completion of both hotels, a massive earthquake struck the area. The hotel on the right was set on unsure footing and all that beautiful detail came crashing down. The hotel on the left, that sat on a solid foundation, endured. Without a solid foundation, even the most opulent will crumble at the first sign of adversity. I'm Kevin Donaldson here with Mike Flace, and on this episode of The Suffering Podcast, we sit down with Katrina Wolf to discuss the suffering of childhood trauma. Katrina's foundation was tested at a crucial time in her life. Katrina, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. I know you travel a little bit of a distance. A little bit, not too far. Not too far. No. You made it here okay? Ice and snow? The ice is a little bit worse by me, but... 
It's you're, not too bad about you. You're all the way, way up north on the border of New York, right? Yeah. 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 And she did tell us she's no good with directions either. So she, you know, she probably got lost somewhere. Well, well that's what <laughs> Katrina and I have in common because I can't find my way around a circle. <laughs> I'm so glad that New Jersey took out all the circles. Because... Not, not all. There's one down by me. <laughs> yeah. You got to go South Jersey. South Jersey. Like nobody up here knows how to work a circle. I can't do it. <laughs> Before we get into anything, let's kids, get into this. Kids, Big Ben Parliament. <laughs> I just can't seem to get them right. Before we get into anything, let's get into this week's social media question. And it comes from Carl. And Carl writes, how do you shield your trauma and the after effects from your family? Katrina, you're our guest. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. I have two boys. They're pretty far apart. I have a 14-year-old and a 4-year-old. So That's like, uh, so if Irish twins are nine months apart, what do you call that? <laughs> Don't say Italian, because I know, I know you're going to go there. <laughs> Let's try not to offend anybody. So two boys, and they're pretty far apart. They're pretty far apart. So when I had my first child... I went with don't do anything my parents did, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess that's like pretty much what everybody does. Sure. But it, it's it's amazing how much you fall into the old habits. Yeah. yeah. So like it was hard to do that. And then I realized that some things that my parents did, even though I didn't do what they did, they changed the way that I was. There was some value in some of the hard lessons you learned from your parents. Now, all of us have been through an academy. Yes. Okay. When your first day of that at police academy, that drill is a piece of shit who is just abusive for no reason. And then once you get to the end of the academy and get into your chosen field, you're like, oh, I get it. I understand it now. And I think that's the same way with parents. There is a reason behind all of that. You know, you learn it when you're young, you don't realize what your parents are doing it for. Then you get that like aha moment when you have your kids. And when you have your kids, you're like, oh, I get it. Same thing with the drills. You you try your best to do differently than your parents, but sometimes it kind of works out that they didn't do such a bad job anyway. Yeah. But then with my second child, I was like, well, maybe not everything was bad with my parents. There were bad times, but maybe it's just about when you introduce what happened to you is how you shield them, right? So, like, you don't tell them when they're four that your mom or your dad was an addict, mm -hmm. right? You tell them when they're 12 or 14 or something like that. By that time, you hope they're mentally prepared in order to take it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. I think well, like a four-year-old isn't going to understand. Right. right. So, I think it's more not really shielding them, but taking them through life at their, how they understand life. Almost like their pace. Yeah. Mike, what do you think about that? How would you? How did you shield your family from your trauma? You know, it, it probably wasn't the best way, but I kind of isolated. I kept them out of it. You know, going through PTSD, you could feel when one of those moods are coming up, mm -hmm. and I just get out of it. You know, it's scary because I did the same exact thing, and I look back on that situation, and I think that's the wrong oh, yeah. way. Like without a doubt, I without a doubt, I wish I would have spoken up a little bit more and given them the courtesy that they may understand more than I think. Yeah. About my situation. Obviously, I had a seven-month-old and a three-year-old. They're not going to get it, but my then three-year-old is now 12, and he knows a little bit about my trauma, a little bit here and there. He knows I don't like guns. He knows don't, don't ever point a toy gun at me. Yeah. I tell him why. I said, you know, this is the reason why, and he understands it. So there's no hard and fast rule. I, the, only, the only lesson that I learned throughout this, Carl, is that shielding is not always the best path. You might want to 
let people know what's going on inside your head. See, my, my kids, at my incident, my kids were about 14 and 10. They were old enough so to know. So they were old enough to realize. And, and I went home that morning and I told them straight out what happened. I said, you know, you're going you're gonna to hear stories in school, you know, because word spreads through town and most of, the word, most of it's wrong. You know, everybody's getting misinformation. So I told them exactly what happened. I said, if people ask you about it, tell them you don't know anything. Carl, I, I really do appreciate that. It's a tough question to answer, and I, I, I don't think I answered it for you. I can only tell you the way that I dealt with it then versus the way that I would deal with it now. But we do really do appreciate these social media questions. Keep sending them in. We'll try to get them on the air. Now, Katrina Wolf, that might be the best WWE name I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> you know, you can just hear them being called out by Vince McMahon coming down the aisle, ready to go. See, I thought you were going to say like porn name. You went, you went WWE. I took me. the high road where you always take the low road. <laughs> But that's, I got to tell you, it's a really good superstar name. You're already, you already got one part soft. Get on the, on the road to being a superstar. Correct, correct. <laughs> so it's start a band and call it like Katrina and the Wolves. Katrina and the Wolves. You know that? Oh, like Katrina jo- and the Waves. Yeah, didn't they do that with Josie and the Pussycats? <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? When I saw this question, I was like, I hate this question. <laughs> By far the hardest question for anybody to answer is that first is that first part. So for those of you and I don't know whether I should let this out, but the the guests are prepped for what we're going to talk about. Just so you can mentally prepare. It's not that we always follow the prep, but I want people to have an idea of these are the conversations that we we really want to have it. Well, we don't, we don't want to lowball anybody. We Correct. don't want to throw in many curves and, you know, here's what we're asking. And We're not looking for sound bites like, hey, what do you think about Black Lives Matter? I don't care. You know, I don't, I don't care about any of that stuff, but I do want you to feel comfortable and I want you to feel prepared. But by far, you're absolutely right. <laughs> Every person has a problem with that first that first. Every, everybody takes a deep breath before that answer. Because <sighs> <sighs> when you think about it, Everyone asks you that question, right? It's on every form that you fill out. Job applications. Job yeah. applications. And now dating apps are out, right? It's a tell me about yourself. What? That's such I'm a... sorry. <laughs> I'm 47 years <laughs> old and I've been married for 20 years. <laughs> dating apps are you're, you're way over my head with that one. <laughs> it's such a broad question, right? Like, like, what am I supposed to say? So I could be like, um, I... Bad with directions. Bad with directions. <laughs> I um, Like, when was your last colonoscopy? These yeah, are the things that we want like, to know. I, I just got out of the hospital because I had my gallbladder taken there out. You go, like, there you I go. Just, but I do know that you're a mother of two. I'm a mother of two. I am a friend. I'm a daughter. I. You're all those good things. Yeah. All um, those good things. But I'm sure there's some things that aren't so good in your life like you got some damage you got well, she some... didn't say she was a good friend and good daughter she right. just said she's a, a friend and I a daughter said, i'm a friend and a daughter i <laughs> but i'm sure you're a great mother see if i were to answer that same question in that same way i'm an asshole i'm a dickhead <laughs> you know i'm i'm a no nothing you know stuff like that that's how i i people would relate to me i know mike says that to me all the time i learned since i went to a resiliency class and when i first answered that question i was like well you know, I went through an abusive past. My parents were addicts. My Then I was raped when I was 12. I went through abusive relationship to abusive relationship. Then I married my ex-husband who was abusive for 14 years. But is that really who you are? I it doesn't th- define you. Right. So. I think in a, lot of, in a lot of ways, 
it, it becomes part of who you are because without that stuff, and it's kind of our, our show here is without that stuff in your life, you'd never be where you were. And maybe you're not exactly where you want to be, but at least you're climbing the ladder in order to get there. To me, that's the good stuff. But before you get into real, true suffering that I know you've had, you've listened to our show mm-hmm. and somebody with who's come from where you've come from your opinion has a lot of validity to me. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the Suffering Podcast. So I met you guys at the, the, blue, suicide. the blue Suicide, which was funny because I saw you guys and we were like, oh, they have to be the important people here. <laughs> <So> <laughs> she did come walking right up to us. <laughs> yeah, we're trust me, we're, we're nobody. <laughs> we're nobody. And, and then I was like, oh, well, they must have this podcast here for a reason, right? Like, <laughs> so then I started listening to you guys, and I was like, "You might be the first person that ever said they they thought we were important." <laughs> <laughs> wow, my ego really yeah. feels. I feel pretty good right yeah. now. To be honest with you, well, you guys were all up front, sitting there, like <laughs> we're, we're on a stage, we're front and center. <laughs> like, why wouldn't you guys be important? Little, little uncomfortable. We had Sheriff Clark. <laughs> yeah, little uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the first time we met you, and you you had a friend there with you. Yeah. And you come up, and you couldn't have been nicer. You you introduced yourself. We met a lot of great people. We that. did. That was a great time. Yeah. Um, Talk about getting lost, though. Holy. Oh, oh that, that was, was ridiculous. <laughs> getting there. That's Sussex County. You get you take one long, wrong turn, and you're squealing like a pig. Yeah, you got that right. You you started listening to a couple episodes, and I really liked how, like you said, suffering in your life. Sure, when you're in it, it seems like you're never going to get out, and it's just all dark. But when you look back on it, it's not all dark. There's light there. Sometimes the bad person in your suffering doesn't always—sure, they did bad things to you, but they're they're not always the bad person, right? They're not always the villain. Well, you see this. You, to your point right there, so they just made that movie Joker. Yes. And all of a sudden, you start seeing— one of the biggest arch villains in comic book history, you start seeing his side of it. You're like, well, I kind of get it now. I understand yeah. it. There are some traumas out there that were caused by other people, mm-hmm. but even those people who caused those traumas, there's something, there's a story to be told behind them because right. very few people in this world are just pure evil. There's a couple. There's a few. There's a few. They're just pure evil. Yeah. Mike's pointing <laughs> to me. <laughs> Go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I I appreciate your opinion on that because um, I've listened to you speak and I know you've had some true darkness coming in your past. So let's get a little bit into you and your greatest suffering story. That, that Before she gets into that day at the Blue Suicide, everybody was riveted on you. I mean, when, when your story came out, I mean, we were just like, holy shit. Tough to listen to. Tough to listen to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. real tough to listen to. And it wasn't like the things you were saying we we had experience with them being police officers. Yeah, we did. We've had the whole gamut of things. But when you hear when you're seeing the face of the focal point of that trauma, it's a little uncomfortable. I mean, I had stood up at a resiliency class, but it was only thirty people, mm-hmm. and it was amongst peers of ours. But that was my first time ever speaking in front of a crowd before. What'd you think? I was really nervous before I went up. <laughs> <laughs> well, mo- to most people, it's public speaking. The way that it is, is it's either public speaking or the dentist are the top two fears. And third is death. So people would rather die than go to the dentist or public speak. Yeah. 
So we spoke at that event there, and I know people are disgusted by my appearance. So I just said, yeah, whatever. I don't give a crap. I, I could care less. But I, that's why we don't have cameras in here. Yeah, that's exactly why we don't have cameras in here. So I, I, I didn't care. I didn't care. But your story, there's such. It's like wow. It's like some of your stuff is wow. So why don't you get into it a little bit? I was born to two addicts, uh, and I was born addicted to uh, cocaine. Crack or just regular cocaine? Uh, crack. My mom and my dad were together till I was four. My mom worked, so nobody really knew that she was an addict. So she was a functional addict. Yeah. yeah. There's more of those out there than people think. There's a lot of functional addicts. Yeah. I don't know if I really like that term. What, a functional addict? Yeah. Because to the world, they're functional, right? Because they go to work. Mm-hmm. But... They just put on that mask, right? So they go to work, and then that's all they do. They come home, and they don't do anything at home. Right? Well, whether it's crack, heroin, or alcohol, prescription alcohol. Any- alcohol, anything. It's, they, when I say functional, I guess I mean they are still productive members of this of society. Of society, right. Where they haven't dropped out, living on the street. Mm-hmm. That's that's their, their when when an addict drops out and lives on the street, that all of a sudden drugs and alcohol and all the bad stuff, that becomes their job. Right. They're no longer functional. Right. That, I didn't mean any disrespect. No, no, no. By, That's, but, that is the term. Yeah. I just feel like there should be like a better term for it, right? Because I get that, like, yeah, in society they're functional. But as a family member, as everything else in their life, they're not functional, right? So she would come home and she wouldn't make dinner. She wouldn't take care of me. Come or, home and hit the pipe right away? Yeah. She would come home and it would be her and my dad and they would do drugs. The only time she would even remotely take care of me is when my father hadn't locked me in the closet for the day and left me out running around. And well, only... who took care of you? You said your parents were together until you were four. Yeah, so, so I had an older brother. So your older brother was your caretaker? Uh, yeah, when he was home. He was in school for right. most of the time. So uh, when he wasn't at school uh, or working... He would take care of me. Mm-hmm. Now, was there any like physical abuse also? Yeah, my dad was physically physically abusive. Nobody in like school picked up on bruises or anything like that, or or you weren't in school yet. I wasn't in school yet. Then by the time I was in school, my mom left my dad uh, to be with my stepfather. Uh, she got clean for a little while until I was nine, and then she relapsed. Was your stepfather clean? Yeah, he was, I don't really know what to call him. (laughs) He was, he was there. He supported us. He like, he made good money. He was a lawyer. So, wow. Listen to that. So your mother, and I'm sure he knew about your mother's past. Yes. Okay. Marries that. That's pretty, that's a pretty big step where you're coming from an, uh, somebody who is an addict to marry a lawyer. Yeah. So your mother must've had been a, beautiful or credible personality or she must have had something my mom was very beautiful and when she wasn't an addict she was a great person Mm -hmm. right so this i think this is the problem that a lot of people have right so you see people that hold on to trying to fix their their addict right that are always enabling their addict and i think this is why because when they're not an addict a lot of addicts are great people. Right. Yeah, I've known I know a lot of addicts that I, I know addicts 
right now that they're some of my better friends in the world. They're no longer addicts, but they're still addicts because you never stop being you're an addict. You never stop being an addict. Right. You know, even like when we were working, when we were on the job, you meet someone that was, you know, a drug addict back then. They were the biggest asshole ever. And then they get cleaned up and they're the nicest people you want to meet. Right. Well, I see this. I, I can't really. I, I got to see. I got to be. I got to wade very carefully through these waters right now, because I know people that are associated in my life. A couple years ago, they were addicts, and I had big conflict with them. Huge conflict, where the authorities had to get involved. Where I had to call the police and say, "Get this person out of here." Since then, they've become clean, and I got to be honest with you, they're fantastic people. Like, fantastic people. Yeah. I always believe in second chances. I always believe you have a chance to rebuild and rewrite your, your history. You're starting off right now with somewhat of a cracked foundation. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> with, a, with a cracked foundation, and it's impossible to build anything on top of a shitty foundation. Yeah. Your mother gets clean. She's married to this lawyer. You're about nine years old. Where's your father at this point? So, he would come in and out of my life he would say that he would come and pick me up he wouldn't pick me up and then when he did pick me up i have like fuzzy memories of when i was young so was the, he clean at that point no the one time he brought me to the park he got drunk with all of his friends and we got kicked out of the park by the cops <laughs> and you're nine years old uh, ten years old no i was younger than that i don't remember did he stay he stayed with you See, my uh, parents just left me at the park. Yeah, he <laughs> Brought stayed. me to the park and left. Yeah, he Put stayed. you to the dog park. <laughs> <laughs> Let you run around the dogs. Like, I, like we were talking about earlier, there's two sides to everything. Is that addiction so strong that you're, you're, you think, well, you know what? They're young. They won't remember. You know, I remember I, I was a smoker for many years after my kids were born. You know, I, I, I quit for a while. And I, same thing. Quit for a while and I go back. And I never did it in front of my kids. At some point, I had to stop because I know these kids are going to see it. I yeah. saw it growing up, and I became a smoker, mm -hmm. and I didn't want that for them. But they're gonna they're gonna eventually smell it on you. You always think you're never you know they're oh, don't worry they're, they're young they'll forget about this stuff. Yeah. They're, they're, they're not, not going to notice. Yeah. They're not going to notice. But that's not true. Like that's it's really not true. Not, that's yeah. really not true. Because I'm well, sure I mean, the kids will notice a change in personality. Also, correct, correct. Your mother relapsed. Did she? Did, did she get clean again, or did she fall back into the, the bad behavior? Uh, she fell back into the bad behavior. So she relapsed. I was at my friend's house for a party. And this is why I say I don't really know what to call my stepfather, right? So instead of either waiting until I came home or picking me up early, he called my friend's parents and told them to tell me that my mom relapsed, that she was going into uh, a drug program if she came around not to talk to her. And then asked them if I could sleep over that night. Maybe they had some sort of intervention. Because that, that's, a, that's a, like an intervention thing. Like, I love you more than anything, but if you continue to do this, I can't talk to you. Right. Yeah. Why wouldn't you... Come and tell you Come person? and tell me. Yeah. Like, fine, if you wanted me to sleep there, then... But come and tell me. It's like getting other people involved. You know? yeah. like, that's... Why are you calling somebody that's outside of the family that doesn't need to know all of this stuff that's going on in our family, first mm -hmm. of all, <laughs> and telling them, hey, my wife just relapsed <laughs> from drugs. She's that going is... into a thing. Can you tell my stepchild <laughs> this? 
I, I don't know. Did it? Did, I don't know the man. Did it seem like was he a malicious man? Was he? And I'm throwing out possible things. Maybe he was trying to make everybody aware of what your mother was doing, so maybe it would make her stop. Because people have very convoluted ways of thinking when they're trying their best. They're doing everything with the best intentions. But could that have been it? Looking back on it, I think that maybe he was just trying the best that he could and didn't really know how. Was he kind of trying to like shame your mother maybe by right, that's telling telling somebody else? Right. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Like, I really don't know. I don't know. I mean, all he had to do was say, hey, listen, could she stay over the house tonight? Yeah, right. It's pretty simple. We're, we're having some issues here, be yeah. nondescript for him to say it as it's yeah it's not quite the way i would handle it but i'm not him right like so like i never really understood why he did it that way like why would you do all of that that's that's kind of a weird situation did your mother got clean again after that she seemed like she was she did a very good job of pretending she was clean for a very long time but she never got clean is your mother still with us yes okay have you ever spoken to her is she clean now no no she's not okay because it would be interesting to find out what hurt. Because I'm being a parent, and we're all parents in this room. It's got to hurt. Like at the end of the day, they're your children, and unless you're totally detached from your children, and you said your mother was a wonderful person when she was clean. Mm-hmm. So unless you're completely detached from your children, that's got to pain you to know that you have something that's that's could hurt your child. It you know? ended up did hurting one of her children. So she never got clean, but then. Eventually, addiction catches up with you. She ran a youth center for a very long time, and it came out that she was taking money from the youth center. That's how she was fueling her addiction. Mm. She started to use too much, and she got into two car accidents. Thankfully, she didn't hurt herself, but she got into two car accidents. Or anybody else. Or anybody else. Still crack at this point? No, she was using pills. Okay. The worst. Yeah. Because it's quote-unquote legal. Yes, and that's what she still uses yeah. to this day. So is it is it like an oxy situation? Yeah. All right. Has she ever stopped? No. Okay. And how old is she now? 67. It's When she stops, she's going to have a problem because her pain receptors, when you're on those oxys, they dull your pain receptors. And then when you stop, your pain receptors wake up and they are angry. And everything hurts. Everything. And I know this from personal experience because of shoulder surgery. Mm-hmm. I was on them for three months. And when I stopped, I was like, holy shit, this hurts. Everything hurts. Yeah. That's horrible. So you did you continue to live with your mother or your stepfather? I left when I was 18. I met my ex-husband when I was 17. I moved in with him when I was 18 and I got pregnant when I was 19. And how old are you now? I'm 33. Wow. Mike could be your grandfather. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> no, look at that. We're only about a half hour into this. <laughs> I held off for a long yeah, time. I, yeah. I held off for a long time. You got to give me a little credit on that one. But you said there was there was sexual assaults? Yeah. Learned pretty young that I had to rely either my brother, my older brother was pretty much everything to me. He was my brother, my father, my friend. Confidant. Yeah. But, you know, he was much older than me. He was 17 years old, older than me. So he had to work and do other things or whatever. So I had to rely on myself for a lot of things. And I had to take care of my younger brother, too. So There was another one that, cut, that came in. Yes. Wow. 
Um, with Different my, father? My with stepfather. Your stepfather. I'm six years older than him. Okay. I started to rely on myself and just do everything for myself. So I started walking everywhere. And back when I was younger, that wasn't not normal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like It's not like now we're like. Yeah, they know, don't walk anywhere. They now. don't go anywhere. Uh, <laughs> but We didn't even have scooters back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> These kids are on these motorized scooters yeah. now zipping up and down the street. Lucky if we had a skateboard, which, yeah. you know, you crack your coconut on it. Yeah. Yeah. So I was walking home one day from uh, the movie theater, and I got raped on the way home. Were the police involved? Uh, no. Whenever I told my parents anything, even that small, that like I had done or that wasn't my fault, it was my fault. So I was mm-hmm. like, oh, if I like tell anybody, it's going to be my fault that this happened. Which is common amongst most victims. I mean, that's not uncommon for a victim to think it's their fault or, you know, people are going to look at you unfavorably if you do tell them. And the predators know that. Yeah. That's the... No, you were were walking home and someone pulled up in a car? Yeah. uh, It was three guys in a car. Did... Was it all three of them? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Now, when you're going through that trauma, if you can do it, as it's happening... What's going through your head? You're, you're, how old are you at this point? I was 12. Oh, man, a 12-year-old. How do you process that? Same age as my son. Uh, what's going through your head when this is going on? I just was scared that they were going to kill me, to be honest. Because there was three of them, and it wasn't like their faces were covered or anything like that. So why would they let me go? You saw everything. They were were they speaking to you? Yeah. Wow. So you think you're going to die, and then you don't die, which is always my definition of post traumatic stress. Yeah. Okay. In this studio, we no longer call it PTSD. We call it post traumatic stress because it's not a disorder. Mm-hmm. It was thrust on you. Having to live with the fact that you think you're going to die and not dying has repercussions and reverberations throughout your entire life. Yeah. How did it affect your home life at that point? Your home life is still wishy-washy with your mother and your father, correct? Yeah. All right. So how did it affect that? Did you just detach? Did you isolate? Um, yeah, I pretty much just detached from everybody. And then it was at this point where I started to go through puberty, right? So You were pre-puberty when they raped you? Yeah. Pre-pubescent. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Yes, Dr. Felice. <laughs> Prepubescent. <sighs> like, I was just at the cusp, right? Of I mm-hmm. hadn't got my period yet, but I had started to go through changes at that point. So, were these guys, if you had to guess, and again, it's hard to guess, if you had to guess, were these guys pedophiles or rapists? Because <laughs> they're obviously both, but why do you think they chose you? I think I was just... An easy target. Crime of opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. I was by myself. I was walking in the dark. Did you ever try to scream? At first, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you know anything about, like, Bergen County. I was in Edgewater. Uh, I I know where Edgewater is, but yes. So, like, there's this really big, steep hill. It's, like, in the middle of the woods. Like, basically, (laughs) there's no houses. There's no... Rarely cars come up and down it because it's really narrow and it's a two-way lane, but 
it's I don't know why it's two ways. Like, there's no reason why it should be. Nobody really drives on it unless you know the area. I think it was just opportunity. Yeah. It's disgusting. It's at one Undercliff? Yeah. That's one of the roads there. Yeah. Was that the road? Uh-huh. Oh, see that? <laughs> so you, My sheriff's department days are coming back to me. <laughs> you have this cracked foundation. You're born to addicts. You said you were a born, you were born, I don't know if you said it here or in your speech, but you were born addicted to crack cocaine. Mm-hmm. You grow up with two addicts in the household until you're four. You grow up, it's just, it's one after the other. And then this event happens to you when you're 12 years old. And I don't even like to say the word rape because it's, it, it curdles my blood and makes me aggravated because I don't understand how anybody could do that. I mean, Mike's looking to go to prison just so he can get raped because he wants to. <laughs> but that aside, it, it's it's a really disgusting act in order to do that to, to another human being. I, I, I don't, and that's why we were talking about it earlier. There are there is true evil out there, but maybe that happened to them. Now, yeah. That is a disorder. PTS isn't a disorder. Yes, a rapist is a disorder. rapist is a, is a disorder. There's something bent or broken in your brain. Child, uh, child predators. There's something bent or broken in your brain. That's a disorder. Yeah. But post-traumatic stress, which I'm sure you're dealing with here. Yes. At 17 years old, you meet your now ex-husband. Mm-hmm. How similar was that relationship to what you knew? Was it, you know, you, you knew this, this just damage, this trauma. That's all you, like that, it's one after the other. It doesn't seem like a real fun time. Yeah. I can be honest with you. It doesn't seem like a whole lot of fun. I mean, at 12 years old, you probably weren't even in, even into dating yet or anything like that, right? No. But, like I, almost no interest in boys. Yeah, no, I didn't really have much experience with anything, especially, so growing up, I was very, uh, I was a tomboy. Like I, I always wore baggy clothes and because I was the only girl in my family. Yeah. <laughs> I have 12 or 14 cousins and they're all boys. And then. Oh, wow. <laughs> so. Like growing up, they always treated me as one of the boys. So that's how I grew up, you know, like right. all my friends when I were young, when I was younger were boys, you know, like. You go through this, this rape and you have, you're surrounded by boys. Was there ever a point where you were kind of standoffish to men? Yeah. Yeah. Because that, that, that's the trauma, the yeah. trauma, it, it jades you against that stuff. And how would you, how would you separate yourself from, from men at this point? It took me a long time to really trust a man that way, like romantically after that. Apparently it was five years. Well, I had a boyfriend. <laughs> I'm, I'm only kidding you. I'm only kidding you. I had a boyfriend when I was 14. Right. But he was abusive. Looking back and, and having the training that you have now and the clarity of thought that you have now, do you think you sought out those, those relationships because of what you went through? Yes. Yeah. It's like an abusive relationship was a way of life. Like I'm a masochist. That's why I'm friends with this guy right here. (laughs) You know, I like the pain. Yeah. All kidding aside, that's, that's what you do. You seek out what you know. Yes. So you, you learn that life, like the chaoticness of life like that. So if something comes along that is normal to Mm -hmm. everybody else, it doesn't seem right. Well, normal. Or normal to you. Right. Normal is is very subjective. Subjective. Yeah. Right. But, normal, right. like what's normal to me is not normal to you or Mike. Right. I don't think anything normal to you is normal <laughs> to anybody. 
So something that's more calm, right? So like someone that if somebody actually came and treated you with respect and right. they were, you know, the, you'd probably say something's wrong here. Something's this wrong. guy's weird. Yeah, <laughs> something's wrong, and then you wait for something to happen. So By the way, you just you just described every single relationship I had in my life until I got married. I always got them after the boyfriend really screwed them over. Right. And, and I had to pay, I sit there and pay the price, and I'd sit there in the corner going, Jesus Christ. Kevin was the fallback guy. I'd, like, I'd love to get my hands on this guy just so I can stop hearing this shit. Um, Kevin's nickname used to be Rebound. <laughs> but it's a shame that, uh, you know, I'm sure there were certain guys in your life, some really good guys that wanted to maybe be involved with you romantically that you probably pushed to the side because of the things you've gone through. That's a, that's a, that's a shame. Yeah. Again, you're, they're doing time for somebody else's crime. Yeah. What I started to talk about is you, you grew up on this really cracked foundation and then you become an adult and now you're trying to build a house on top of a cracked foundation. (laughs) What happens when your foundation isn't solid? House is going to crumble. Yeah, it crumbles. So you, you get pregnant at nineteen. You're with your then ex husband. I'm listen. I'm no linguist, but by you saying ex husband, I'm going to assume that you're divorced. We're divorced. Okay. Yes. You know what? You have a flair for the obvious. I, <laughs> listen, I I just pick up on this stuff. <laughs> you're quick. <laughs> now, was that also another abusive relationship? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It took me a while to realize that he was abusive. What explain that one? Uh, because because abuse abuse is uh, the definition of abuse has many different facets, mm-hmm. but most people see abuse like I come up and smack you in the face. Yeah, I mean it's physical and mental abuse Correct. also. Right, he was never, I guess, physically like he never hit me, but he was mentally abusive and he was sexually abusive. So that's an interesting area to get into. So your husband and I know what happens, but your husband was sexually abusive to you. Mm-hmm. Because even in marriage, no means no, correct? Yes. So get into a little bit of that one. And how do you report that? Yeah. You know, oh, I was, my I was raped by my husband. Yeah. Right. That, you're, the cops are going to always look sideways on you. Yeah. So that's something that you're never really taught when you're young, right? When you're in a relationship with somebody, you're in a relationship with somebody. So how do you know what's wrong and what's not wrong when when you are having sexual relationships with them right Mm -hmm. and you learned what was wrong at a young age but you didn't know it was wrong right the first time that he sexually assaulted me we were both drinking and i told him no and he forced himself on me anyways the next day i told him you know like i told you no but you did it anyways he was like oh i was drunk or whatever so i was like okay you know Maybe he was just really drunk and we're just... I've been really drunk and I've never forced myself on a woman. Yeah. Mike, different story. <laughs> he tries to force himself on me all the time. That's a different story. <laughs> you know, he, he gets drunk enough. I put a little lipstick and mascara on him. It's, it's go time. It's go time. But yeah. you could, as you can tell, we're really close. We're really close. <laughs> but it's, it, again, so there's all these different factors. You're married. There's alcohol involved. Yeah. At this point, you got to feel a little trapped. Yeah. So then I was like, I don't really know. I don't really know. Right? right. So I let it go. Right. About eight months, a year later, it happens again. Was there similar circumstances? Similar, similar circumstances. There's alcohol involved. I wasn't drinking, but he was. Mm. So I said something to him again, and he said the same thing. So now I'm like, oh, I don't really like. Yeah. But at this point, 
I, I got pregnant. By the sexual assault? Yes. Wow. It's such a foreign concept to me. Again, again, because I'm a man and nobody can, no woman can sexually assault me. Unless you want them to. Correct. <laughs> Correct. It's, it's not like, oh, you know, it, it, it doesn't work that way. It's a one-way street on that one. And now there's a, there's a child. That, what was your reaction? Were you mad? Were you like, or it was like, oh, okay, well, this is a good thing. Maybe that's come out of a bad situation. How did you look at it? Um, I didn't really think about that part of it, mm. I guess. I wasn't really ready to have a baby. I never, growing up, I never really wanted to have children. I was just like. Because oh. of your childhood. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. I mean, but see that you have the ability to be the best mother ever. Yeah. Because you already know the bad stuff. Yeah. You know, if you were, it's those people who, wait, let me ask, let me back up for a second. Your mother, what was her childhood like? From when she talks about it, it was not a good Oh, okay. Job. At some point, somebody flipped over. Because yeah. I've seen lots of people who were raised with silver spoons in their mouth, and they turn out to be disasters. Yeah. But I've never met one interesting person that doesn't have some suffering in their past. Yeah. So you have now the ability to be this super mom because you know the bad stuff. Yeah. Did you, as a younger woman, I don't, when, so you're a corrections officer now, correct? Yes. All right. As a younger woman, did you ever start going down that path that your mother and father went down? No. Never once. Did you, have you ever, you ever tried drugs, ever done drugs? Um, I tried marijuana. That was it. You tried it, didn't like it, wasn't for you? I did it a little bit when I was young, but yeah. I was always scared to try anything because I was always scared that I was going to be addicted to it. Well, you have the addictive personality at that point. Yeah. Because, you know, handed you, down. You got scared straight. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. Because that, that happened if you, you take my brother and I. So, again, we grew up in a house full of smokers. I picked it up. My brother went the exact opposite ways, never touched it in his life because he got scared straight. Mm -hmm. I guess I was just, I, my brother was just more scared than me. That's how I always say it because he's a puss. <laughs> so you apparently got scared straight. So, okay, let's start the building blocks now. That's, that's a win for Katrina because she got scared straight and she's not going down that path of addiction. Now the damaging relationships. Let's, let's start checking. Let's go down, let's go down that road. Yeah. So you finally get away from this abusive sexually and mentally person. You have your two children. They're still with you, correct? Yes. Okay. One quick question getting back to that. And it, it's a tough question. I, I'm, when you got pregnant after being sexually abused, was there any like resentment towards that child? Yeah. Everybody thought that I had postpartum depression because for a while... I had a lot of resentment towards him because of how I... I how it happened. The baby. How he came the about. Baby. Right. And then, you know, about a year after, you know, I realized that like, it wasn't his fault. He didn't choose to come into this world, you know? <laughs> so... No child asked to be born. Yeah. I let go of the resentment towards him. Well, that's where the good mom comes in. You're fixing that childhood relationship yeah you know you're fixing that i'm sure you have some resentment towards your parents it's natural if you did yeah or and at some point you have to let that go yeah now what you have to do now is is these different steps you you have to understand that this is you rebuilding and i'm going to play armchair psychologist here this is you rebuilding your foundation in order so your children have a better you we all want our children to have better lives than us yes you're trying to give your your kids that good foundation 
but you can't do that for them unless your foundation starts getting fixed and repaired. Yeah. So that's, you know, it's just step after step, step after step. You leave your, your ex-husband. Did you get involved in any other relationships that were healthy? Uh, so I went through a couple of relationships. I'm currently in one now that is healthy. Mm-hmm. It took me a couple to get there. <laughs> Yeah, trial and error. <laughs> trial and error. <laughs> Babe Ruth struck out more than anybody else in the in the in baseball. So he struck out more than you in college. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to throw that. Yeah, in there. that's that's pretty good though. That's pretty good. I think we're 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 on neck and neck on that one. Now you know what good a good relationship is. Yes, and what is a good relationship for you? For me. Obviously, somebody who doesn't sexually assault you, Someone, check. Check. That's, yeah. that's yeah. in there. Um, you know, like so, you said, the, the first question on here, tell us about yourself. <laughs> that, that's like the first question when she gets into a dating relationship. <laughs> Are you <laughs> going to sexually assault? <laughs> do you know Do you know what no means? <laughs> okay, good. Okay. Next question. <laughs> what I realized for me was that I need someone who's going to be patient <laughs> because... Even though I have fixed a lot of my foundation, I have a lot of complex PTS that I still deal with, right? I There are certain triggers that are always going to trigger you. That are always going to trigger me, and that's what a lot of people don't understand, right? So when you go through all of this trauma, even when you heal it and you see that it has fit it's it's changed you there are still things that are going to bleed through into your life right there are things that my partner is always going to have to deal with a trigger for me is the car when we're in the car he's six three and he's a he's loud he's just a loud individual <laughs> right so my ex used to wait till we were in the car to yell at me because the kids weren't there. We weren't around people, right? I'm just taking notes because that's a good idea. No. <laughs> <laughs> Wait until getting the car started. Yes, because nobody is there to see you, right? And it's usually somewhat soundproof. It's soundproof, mm-hmm. right? Turn the radio up. <laughs> Even if he's not yelling at me and he's just talking in his normal voice, it brings me back to me being yelled at. And it's not even like I, I'll just be in that moment with my ex. It makes sense. Yeah, it, it makes a hundred percent sense because you, you're carrying all this damage over from all your experiences. Yeah. Do you ever think that there's going to be a time when they're not triggers for you? So I'm working on it. Yeah. I go to therapy and stuff. So I talked about it with my therapist and I was able to bring myself out of it the last time we were in the car. So uh, we were going out and as we all know, I'm terrible with directions. And mm-hmm. I was like, you don't have to put the GPS on. I know how to get yeah, there. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> and, then you get lost. Then he starts yelling at you. Now here you go. Were you yelling at yourself in the car when you couldn't find the directions? <laughs> Just roll the windows up. <laughs> then we get lost because I told him the wrong turn. <laughs> he was like, but you said you knew where we were going. <laughs> and he didn't even yell. <laughs> And then I was like, but hold on, wait, hold on. And I started to panic. I thought about it for a second. And when I was talking to, to it about my therapist, she was like, okay, but you're not with your ex. You're with your new partner. You're safe. You can say that all day long because, yeah. you, you know, hey, you know, if Mike's having a having a bad day, hey, 
it's going to be okay. What do you, what do you, what are you going nuts for? Yeah. You could say that all day long. Yeah. Nobody, they're not going to believe it. But right. see, like, like the yelling and all that stuff and, and the, the abuse is what gave you PTS. So anything that remotely resembles that is going to be a trigger for you. Yes. My PTS came from being involved in a shooting. Now, whenever I hear about a shooting, I get those feelings. Mm-hmm. You know, police involved shooting. I get those feelings all back again. And what he does, what Mike does is, because we have our nonprofit that deals with suffering and first responders. First thing he'll do, and I know, I know it well enough to know that this is, this is something that's near and dear to his heart and it's something that bothers him. He'll text me right away. Hey, there's, there's a shooting here. There's a shooting here. There's a shooting here. First thing I said to him this morning, yep. police officers killed in New York this morning. Now that you know what good is, now that there's your next building block. Yeah. How did it lead you to becoming a corrections officer? Was this even a driving motivation or was it just a job of opportunity? I probably never would have became a, any type of law enforcement. I was in school to be an art teacher. When people think about how like trauma affects you and how it drives you to become what you are now... On the outside, a lot of people would be like, oh, you know, she became a corrections officer to help people, right? Because no one was there to help her when she was younger. That's not why I became a corrections officer. My trauma caused me to become a corrections officer because I knew that I needed something stable in order to take care of me and my children so that I could get out of the situation I was in. That's fixing the the correct foundation. Yeah. Again, it goes back to... Stability, stable yeah. foundation. You're seeking stability that you did not have. Yeah. And, I, you know, listen, we'd all like to find some sort of stability in our lives. I think it's, but if you've had stability in the past, like you grew up with some sort of stability and you have stability now, you're certainly not going to appreciate it. But if you came from an unstable place and you have it now, you'd be like, wow. Sure do appreciate it yeah. once you get it. <laughs> right. Mike and I have seen you speak and you've let out certain things you said you went to that 30 person resiliency training and mm-hmm. you let your story out and then you let it out at the moment blue magazine's moment of silence yeah what did that feel like when you first let it out when you got done when i got done i spoke that day as well when i got done i actually had to go sit in a corner and just decompress yeah. and decompress and i've told my story many times and each time it does get a little bit easier for me did it was that the same thing for you yeah. So the first time it was hard that night, like to sleep and stuff, because it brings up a lot of all of the feelings that you kind of repress. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, the second time it was a lot easier, but I still had to take some time. I didn't get to do it right after because I had to leave right away after mm-hmm. I spoke. Um, we had a uh, wedding to go to. But for me, I think the hardest part about speaking is seeing like everybody's reaction because I always get worried, right? Of how people are going to think about think what about I said. you after it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cuz when you know, I, I go to the police academy all the time and and I, you know, talk to recruits about what it's like to be involved in a in a fatal shooting. And, and there are times, you know, you're you're up there trying to be Joe Macho cop teaching these young recruits what it's like and I start to tear up. Yeah. You know, my voice starts cracking and but so again, that gets I'm back to. I'm sitting here thinking, like, what are these, what are these young guys thinking of me? But, you know, but that gets back to Carl's social media question. Are you're trying to shield those recruits from the the real pain that you're feeling? You don't want to show that vulnerability. Is that really the right way to do it? 
Or do you show them exactly what you showed them, that you're a big, giant pussy? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much what it, and that's what I think, you know. Look at these kids, they think I'm a, I'm a pussy, you know. But, but you, you understand what I'm saying, yeah. though. No, that's the reality. Just like when you go out and tell your story, you're going to get some uncomfortable, some uncomfortable stares, Katrina. Yeah. Because you're talking about some subjects, like... I remember first time I ever saw The Accused with Jodie Foster, I had to, I couldn't sit through the rape scene. Yeah. I, I couldn't do it. So you try to shield those around you and those relationships from your damage and your trauma and your suffering. But is it really the right thing to do? Is it really the right thing to shield them or you, you let them in and, and then maybe they'll have a little bit better understanding of why, who you are, why you are the way you are. And just same thing with the recruits, Mike. It would be it would be helpful for them to see, hey, here's a guy, he's a pretty manly guy, and he's tearing up because he's human. Yeah. Okay, well maybe that's okay for me to do it that way. Rather than just suck it all inside and be where Mike and I are right now. Right. Retired because we can we can no longer be officers. Right. I think you need to continue to tell your story. To me it's very therapeutic. Yeah. You know, it's sometimes it's good to get like you're talking about a therapist. I went to quite a few therapists until I found one that I liked, but it was just rehashing every time. You know, I left the therapist's office feeling worse than when I, when I went in because now you're rehashing the whole story again. Now it's on your mind. Now I got to drive home and that's all I'm thinking about my incident. So Mike and I, by the time this airs, Mike and I will already have gone and been back from Florida where we will be rehashing our stories frequently on several different shows. I'm not looking forward <laughs> the anxiety is already starting to to tip up a little bit because when again when you tell these certain feelings bubble up and yeah it's 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 going to be it's going to be tough to deal with that stuff but the more you do it the easier it becomes you know kevin brought up something before about uh watching a movie with a rape scene have you ever watched a movie since like with a rape scene in it i have watched movies i don't really watch any of the rape scenes i kind of like turn away and stuff like that the last time that my ex sexually assaulted me was after it's funny it's funny how you change the terminology it just i just noticed that we're talking rape scene you say rape scene and then my husband sexually assaulted me. <laughs> i was that purposeful i don't I don't know. I don't yeah. know if it's mentally or... I don't know if it's Hollywood to call it a sexual assault scene in a movie. You yeah. know, rape scene catches the headlines. Yeah, because I, I, like, can't watch police movies where there's, like, shootings in them. Yeah, I, That I, bothers me. I, it bothers yeah. me as well. Took me a long time to watch American Sniper. Uh, I watched that over a course of about seven days. Yeah. Yeah. And that and uh, Lone Survivor is another one I can't watch. But I love I love watching them in bits and pieces. I just can't watch the whole movie the through whole and through. Movie. Yeah. Yeah, the last time he... um. He used a gun. We weren't together anymore. We had already been separated. We weren't divorced yet, but we were separated. This is why I started speaking. For a while after I went, I didn't really know if I wanted to be a police officer anymore. Because I saw a lot of the the holes in what we do. Thin blue line, I've, I always say, is a big myth. But there um, are people that I'd live and die for. But... Everybody thinks that blue line of silence is it's not what yeah. it, it's not reality. There's a lot of holes. So I went and I reported it and I got the TRO for that night. They sent him to my jail. Really? Oh. 
I told the judge, I was like, uh, that's my jail. Like, how are you mm-hmm. going to send them there? And he was like, oh, that's not my job. It's huh. your it's your jail's job not to take him in. <laughs> I was like, okay. Your jail's job not to take him in. Jeez. What, are they going to refuse him? Yeah. And I was like, all right. Well, then... On the TRO, he's not allowed to be at my uh, my job. He's not allowed to be within 100 feet of me, you know, like the typical Mm -hmm. thing. So, Like putting him in jail, he violates a TRO. Yeah. (laughs) Go figure. Yeah. So then I have to call out of work the next day because obviously they take him in, right? Mm. Which technically they shouldn't have. Uh, On the TRO, it says he's not allowed to be there. So they should have sent him somewhere else. Right. They take him in. And they tell me a few months later, well, he was only going to be there for the night, you know, because the CJP, they were going to release him. So right. Yeah, but even, it doesn't matter. It's still violation of the TRO. It's, it's a forced violation. Like, what the heck? <laughs> and, and that would probably, if you showed up there, I'm guessing, would probably be your fault. What do you, you mean? You were in violation of your own TRO because he had no control. He was in custody. <laughs> wow. I never even thought about that. Like... How does that make any sense? Where was the PBA on this? Yeah. So you started speaking because of him? Because of what happened, yeah. yeah. Because then, you know, I, we went through the whole process. And we go and we sit for the tier, the, the for it to become final. And they and were like, mm-hmm. And they go, well, you know, you should just put it into your divorce. Then it becomes civil and... Like we deal with civil situations. Remember with the custody battles and civil? Like, yeah. oh, they call us up. Well, he didn't drop the kid off. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a civil order. There's absolutely nothing, nothing we, can, we do. can do. Yeah. But I have the paperwork that's. Doesn't matter. Talk to the judge. Yep. yep. They were like, you should just put it into your divorce instead of making it a final. It's so lazy. Yeah. They're so lazy. So they talk you into doing this. And then I'm sitting there. Now it's over Zoom because, you know, COVID. And. <laughs> They must spell this narrative to everyone because I just saw case after case after case after case going from TRO to consent order, TRO to consent order. And I'm like, this system is broken. A friend of mine just had that done. He was he was actually assaulted by his wife. They convinced him to drop the temporary restraining order mm-hmm. and put it into the divorce. Same thing you're exactly saying. Yeah. Why? Why? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why am I sitting here keeping people in jail when the system is broken itself? Like, why? Why am I doing this? So then I went to the resiliency thing, and I saw how many other people were hurting in our field. They're hurting because they're not talking about what's wrong. Well, that's the like the macho cop mentality we talk about all the time. You, yeah. know, you, you never want to see them. You don't want to be seen as a weak person. Yeah. You know, and, and it's it's not even it's it's not even a male thing because I see this in female officers mm-hmm. as well. They hold it inside because they're afraid to say anything. They're afraid to say they're hurting. They're mm-hmm. afraid to say that something's bothering them because they're afraid to get put on the rubber gun squad. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's a it, it is it's a broken situation. Mm-hmm. But from what I know about the resiliency program that New Jersey, I think the AG put it in. Yeah. The resiliency program, they're trying to break that stigma. Yes. That that was going to segue into what I want to talk about next is you using your suffering and how you do it today. So give us a little insight on how you use your your past suffering. So, you, you've, you've got some, you got quite a bit. I'm, gonna, I'm not going <laughs> to lie to you. Your book is kind of full right now. Yeah. I mean, she goes right along with our motto, you know, yeah. 
You're not broken, but you're pretty fucking dense. <laughs> yeah, you got some dents. You got a lot of dents in you. I got a lot of dents. <laughs> so I started speaking out about it. Hmm. Went with the resiliency program with work, I found another uh, resiliency program that goes around and teaches not only cops, but civilians and teachers and anybody on the front lines how to be resilient. I created all different types of social media and just trying to teach people how to take your past basically what you do and use it use it use it these social media accounts what's the name of that uh trauma phoenix trauma phoenix okay so what what we'll do is just send me a list of all your social media accounts especially as it relates to your trauma and we will absolutely trauma phoenix that's pretty cool that's pretty cool. So you're going to rise from the ashes. But we'll put a link to all this I was this thinking stuff. about Phoenix, Arizona, because it's cold out, it's cold out <laughs> it's here so today. It's so cold today. <laughs> oh, my God. Pat Tillman. I, don't know, I thought that, yeah. Pat Tillman. So I want to put a link to all these things, because I, I want to give people the opportunity to show people that just like you, you come, you get broken down, but there is an opportunity to rise up above. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else that you want to throw out there? I work for Resilient Minds on the Front Lines. I think they're a pretty good organization. They're a not-for-profit, and they do just what we're trying to do, teach you how to be resilient, take your trauma, and change it into something that could help you. you you've gone through this life, and there's a purpose for you to go through the, the life that you've led. Yeah. All right, and I'll be damned if I can believe in my heart of hearts that you were just supposed to sit silent and suck it up. You're definitely not. Because if you do that, you're really wasting a great opportunity to get some fantastic information out there. Yeah. Anything that you went through can help not only yourself, but somebody else that is suffering too. Well, we say it all the time. You, you think you're the only one going through it. Your story could help someone down the line. Yeah. And that's what me and Kevin do this for because we talk about all different things. You know, we're, we're law enforcement based, but we've talked to mobsters. <laughs> we've yeah. talked yeah. to dirty cops. We've talked to... a they all have a story to tell and someone else may be going through that and they may listen to that and like clicks and, and helps them out. So we're coming to the end of this thing. Now you look back on your life and where you were versus where you are now. What do you think all this suffering has taught you? It's definitely taught me that no matter what you go through, there's always not only a light at the end of the tunnel, but there's no reason to hold everything in. You don't always have to do it alone. If there's one thing that I learned throughout my life was that I wouldn't be here if I hadn't had reached out and asked for help. Well, Katrina, I really do appreciate you coming in today. Thank you so much for everything that you're doing now. And Mike, this is one of, this is really a well, dented individual what? right here. I'm it sorry was... to talk right in front of you, but <laughs> you got to, you made my mouth drop a couple times during this. Well, I mean, when we first heard her talk, I mean. I sat there and said, that's a strong woman. You know, for her to get in front of all of those people, people don't, you don't even know. And to tell your story like that, I was actually touched by your story that day. Thank you. Strong woman because me. she, because Katrina has bigger biceps. Than She's going to kick my ass if I don't say that. <laughs> Correct. Okay. All but right. you were talking about going through, you know, the dark tunnel and the light at the end of the tunnel. Somebody said it here. I forget who it was. It's so dark in that tunnel. You think you're alone. But it's so dark, you don't see the person walking next to you. You don't see them. And yeah. they are there. They are right. there. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the Suffering Podcast. And let's think about all the stuff that we learned today. Kevin didn't stutter over himself once? 
<laughs> we learned that Mike Felice is once still a jerk-off. No always means no. Be patient with another. You never know what their triggers are. We all search for stability, but most importantly, rebuild from your foundation. And that's going to do it for this episode of The Suffering Podcast, The Suffering of Childhood Trauma with Katrina Wolf. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and we will see you on the next episode of The Suffering Podcast.